So you would grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15, which you'll find on page 923 of the Pew Bible, Acts chapter 15. Listen now as I read aloud the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, this passage is about something scandalous to many, if not most, first-century Jewish background believers. So scandalous, in fact, that it nearly split the early church. And the scandal is this. Not only is the gospel of the kingdom for the world, but entrance into this kingdom is strictly by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Your works contribute nothing to the decisive moment of your salvation, the moment you're justified or declared righteous by a holy God. Your performance is not considered when you ask, how can I 
be saved. Now, most of life is based on performance. In different ways, to differing degrees, your performance matters. Grades and test scores, your performance in the classroom, determine whether you qualify for a particular school. Athletic prowess, your performance on the court or the field determines whether you qualify for a place on that team. Looks and communication skills, your performance in society determines whether you qualify for acceptance into a certain friend group or social circle. I could go on, but I hope you see that in most of life, performance matters, but, but entrance, entrance into Christianity is different. Admittance into the gospel of the kingdom where Christ is your Lord and the church is your family, this is different. There is no entrance examination that you have to pass. There is no grade requirement for admittance. It's not based upon your skills. It's not based upon your abilities. It's not based upon your charm. Praise the Lord. Entrance into the gospel of the kingdom is not based upon the work you do. And this was a scandal in the minds of many, if not most, Jewish background believers in the early church. Now, inscribed on the Statue of Liberty are the famous words of Emma Lazarus. She wrote, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. She saw America as a refuge for those seeking asylum from tyrannical regimes across the world. In America, you could be free from despots and tyrants. But there is a freedom that is so much deeper and wider and sweeter than entrance into Ellis Island. It's the freedom of living in God's grace and under his mercy, and it's a freedom that is available to the world, to every man and to every woman and to every child who would simply yearn for the grace found in Christ alone. So the gospel cries out like the Statue of Liberty to the world saying, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? freedom. Every, every few months, we return to Acts. It's the history of the spread of Christianity, right, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas, they took this gospel and they, they, they took it from Antioch and they took it into the northern regions of Turkey and they saw numerous non-Jews get saved. They, they, they preached this gospel and people who were not Jewish, we call them Gentiles, came to saving faith in Christ. And then they, when they were done with, with what we call Paul's first missionary journey, they went back to Antioch, which is north west of Jerusalem. It's in what is now really Syria, the southern tip of Turkey. They went back to Antioch, 
and they discovered not everyone was pleased. That brings us back to Acts chapter 15. I have three points this morning. First, the question from Antioch. The question from Antioch. Second, the answer from Jerusalem. The answer from Jerusalem. And then third, the wonder of the gospel. All right, first, the question from Antioch. Now look again at verse 1. So after Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them, that is the Gentiles, to keep the law of Moses. So again, verse 1, we're starting in Antioch where men from Judea, obviously an ethnically Jewish region, these Christians, these Christian teachers from Judea are in Antioch, and they are teaching that in order to be saved, Gentiles must first be circumcised, verse 1. Now, what they mean more broadly by that is clarified in, by Luke in verse 5. This was a teaching that in order to be saved, Gentiles must keep the law of Moses. Right? This included many Old Testament commands, uh, certainly circumcision, uh, certain dietary restrictions, uh, certain modes of dress, uh, whom you could marry. All of this is, is part of the, the law of, of Moses. And this was a pressing concern for the Antioch church because not only... Basically, from day one, was the church in Antioch a, a Gentile church, a church predominantly filled with Gentiles, but it was a church planting church. This predominantly Gentile church had basically sent out Paul and Barnabas to go and plant churches in Gentile territory. And they had great success. And Paul is excited about the success. He's telling people about the success. He says it in verse 3, how he described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. In verse 4, we're told that Paul and Barnabas declared all that God had done with them. And the with them part is how God had used them as evangelists to spread the gospel in Gentile territory. Now, when news of this expansion of Christianity among Gentiles spread, when news of that spread, alarm bells started going off among some of these Jewish background believers. Right? They, they're willing for the church to grow among the Gentiles. They're willing for there to be Gentile Christians, but they insist that for those Gentiles to be truly saved, they must first become Jewish, right? It's like saying if you really want to be a Georgian, you got to root for Georgia or Georgia Tech or whatever, right? It's not enough, right? I don't care what your driver's license says. If you're not a fan, you're not really a Georgian, 
Right? I don't care, they said, that these Gentiles are praising God. Right? If, they're not, if they've not embraced the totality of God's law, it's not enough. And they're not really, truly believers. And it's, it's easy to throw them under the bus, this party of the Pharisees among the believers. Let's think for a moment, the best of them, they didn't want to dishonor God's word. Uh, the Old Testament is full of numerous commands, commands that Jesus had been quite careful to say were not abolished. They had been fulfilled by Jesus, but not abolished by Jesus. So wanting to honor God's word, these scrupulous believers concluded that whatever Jesus meant by fulfilling the law, he did not mean that these new believers did not themselves have to submit to the particular requirements of the law. They were trying to honor God's word. They were trying to honor God. It's the word of God. I mean, they had a high view of God. They wanted to make much of God and of his character and of his will. And they remembered what happened when God's people failed to honor God's word. Insert Babylon. I mean, Jerusalem was devastated because generations had neglected God's word. And they didn't want to see that to happen with this new movement of the early church. And so they demand that Gentiles keep the law in order to be saved before they could be called Christians. And that's their position. And so hearing about this massive movement of the gospel uh, in Antioch and beyond, they go to Antioch, they demand obedience to the law. Paul and Barnabas argue with them. We're told there's much dissension but eventually, the church in Antioch decides that they want to know what Jerusalem thinks. And so they send individuals like Paul and Barnabas and others from Antioch to Jerusalem to see what the folks in Jerusalem have to say about this question. And just to be clear, the question is simple. What is necessary for salvation? What is necessary for salvation? Is faith in Christ enough, or is it faith plus works? Now, you've probably heard of the Trojan horse. See, no heads nodding, maybe one head nodding, two, great. Not the most participatory group, admittedly. <laughs> and yet, they say the disciple will become like the teacher, so I don't know what that says about me. Nonetheless, after 10 years of trying to conquer Troy, the ancient Greeks concocted a plan. They left the region of Troy, and they left behind a gigantic wooden horse. And the Trojans, seeing this horse, brought it within their city gates, kind of marveling at this gift of sorts. And then, at night, Greek soldiers spilled outside of the horse, from inside to the outside, and they conquered the city of Troy. Gigantic wooden Trojan horse, looks like a gift on the outside, on the inside, full of deadly Greek soldiers. Is the gift of salvation like the Trojan horse? A shell of grace on the outside, 
filled with soldiers of good works on the inside. Yes, Jesus is great. Thank God for the cross. But be sure to eat kosher, be circumcised, keep your fabric separate, and so on. That's the question. Is salvation really a gift, a free gift, a gift for people for, from all nations? Uh, a gift of freedom from the law? Freedom from salvation by works? Now, this wasn't just a problem for the early church. Uh, as the doctrine of what we now call the Roman Catholic Church was being settled, the question of salvation by works was a live question. Many theologians in the Middle Ages and beyond concluded that grace wasn't enough. They argued that God is gracious to those who do their best. Grace is like the light, but we have to open the shutters. Grace is like the wind, but we have to put up the sails. And so for the Roman Catholic Church, yesterday and today, opening the blinds and putting up the sails are like circumcision. They are our, our works. And they are necessary in order to be saved. And I would argue that this is a common view even today. Even among those who are not Roman Catholic. Even among those who attend faithfully evangelical churches like ours. I'd argue that if you ask most people in our churches what they must do to be saved, you would hear lots of works-based answers. I need to be nice. I need to go to church. I need to give. I need to serve the poor. I need to read the Bible. I need to pray. If you ask God on the day of, of judgment, you know, God, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, as D. James Kennedy once asked, how many people would say, you should let me in because I did this or that? Is salvation by grace through faith alone, or is salvation by grace plus works? This being hammered out in this question from Antioch. Now, justification by works, that, that, that desire to be justified by works is really human nature. So I think of the, a, a star athlete and what he typically does after an amazing dunk or a just ridiculous tackle. You know, he just glares at his opponent. You know, I personally have never experienced this on either end of the athletic event, but I've seen it on TV. You know, he just glares at the opponent, daggers coming out of his eyes, and the, the idea, as I read it, the bubble over his head is, is I own you. I worked harder than you, I'm better than you, I'm faster than you, I'm stronger than you, and we're going to win because I'm that good. I don't know if that's what they're all thinking, but that's what it looks like when I see that glare. And the, the question from Antioch is really the question, even in Atlanta, I think, today, you know, are you saved by God's grace alone, or do you somehow deserve it? To put it another way, are you relying on Christ's cross for your salvation? Or the cross plus your performance? Right, so that's, I really, I, I've tried not to give you the answer, but that's the question. It's the question from Antioch. 
Right, that's the first point. Let's move along to the second point. Second, the, the answer from Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. The church in Antioch is seeking clarity on this question. And they're seeking clarity from the church in Jerusalem. And the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they take this request seriously. And as Luke tells us in verse 6, they gathered together to consider this matter. They needed to talk about it. They needed to think about it. They needed to pray about it. They needed to discuss it. Now, why did the church in Antioch solicit help from the church in Jerusalem? I mean, isn't every church independent, right? Uh, what are they doing? Aren't the, uh, 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 isn't the church in Antioch capable of deciding this question on, on their own? Well, here's a, a few reasons why they would wisely seek out some wisdom from the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem had apostles. When there are apostles alive, you should always ask them their opinion. These men had been handpicked by Jesus. Many of them were in Jerusalem. It would be foolish not to know what they thought. But it's not just that Jerusalem had apostles. Like for me, that's totally enough, the way I, I'm thinking about it. But interestingly, notice who else is involved in this conversation. Church elders. There are run-of-the-mill church elders in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was a normal church. I mean, as, as normal as a church could be in the first century, right? It was, it was the first church. It was further down the road, an, an older church, a more mature church, a wiser church. Those Jerusalem elders had seen a lot. They had been around from the very beginning. And so the church in Antioch wisely wanted to seek their counsel. So I don't think it was merely because there were apostles who were there. I mean, after all, by this point, Paul would have rightly understood himself to be an apostle. But there were elders in a wiser and more established church that they sought out for wisdom. And I would say, totally not the main point of the passage, but I would just say that this is why it's so important, even today, for churches to have relationships with other churches. Whether those relationships are, I know that a lot of you don't like denominationalism. I'm not, I'm not even gonna raise my hand and ask right? Do you like denominations? Like, who likes denominations? Do you like the dentist? I get it. Nobody likes denominations. That's a, it's, a, it's a formal way for a church to have a relationship. So whether it's formally through a denomination, read Baptist or Southern Baptist or PCA or so forth, or even more organically, uh, simply through relationships or ministry friendships, right? These relationships, formal and informal, can help congregations think better theologically and even ethically. Now, this is very difficult for the 21st century social media generation to get because you think, well, if I just have a question, I put it out on Twitter. That's what Quora is for. So I get it, and I do think, in all honesty, that God can use the Internet. I mean, the, the world is smaller. The world is flat. Now, not really flat. Baptist pastor says the world is flat. Don't tweet that. <laughs> but we can get lots of information. But, but the, and it can be right. 
But theologically, notice what God's people have always done. They have found other congregations and said, we have something to learn from you. It doesn't mean we should neglect our doctrine or change our view. But there's a certain humility that we see in the church in Antioch as it seeks out counsel from the church in Jerusalem. Now, just very practically, this is one reason why Mount Vernon invests so heavily in what is formerly the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network. Uh, we give financially a lot of our time goes to just trying to help that network of churches in metro Atlanta prosper. It's why we devote so much of our energy to Feed My Sheep, which is less formal, more organic, just other churches basically in Georgia. We are, in a sense, seeking to live out Acts chapter 15, and it doesn't happen overnight. You need relationships, and that's what these denominations and these less formal structures provide. So consider coming to Feed My Sheep and seeing what that's like, especially if you're a member of Mount Vernon, as we, and pray that we would serve and that we would be served by other churches. All right, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they debate. They debated the Antioch question. And as the debate wrapped up, the first to stand up and give a formal address is Peter. Look at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, that is, between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that is, the, the Gentile disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. Now, notice Paul makes, Peter makes three points. I didn't make that three points. Ever wonder why I have all these three-point sermons? Just following Peter. Some people are going, is he serious? All right, but it does look like there's basically three things he's saying. First, remember how I got to Cornelius. So that's what Peter is saying. Remember how I got to Cornelius? The early days that Peter talks about in verse 7 are about a decade prior to this meeting when God brought the gospel to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius through the apostle Peter. And all of this is recorded in Acts chapter 10. God told Peter to share the gospel with Gentile Cornelius. Now at first, and so Peter understood that they would, have, they would have known this event, so he doesn't recount it all. But what he's bringing to mind is the reality that at first Peter didn't want to go. No, these Gentiles are unclean, and so Peter didn't want to step foot into their home. And so this is why God sent Peter a remarkable vision of unclean, unkosher animals. And God tells Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, well, I can't eat. These, these, these animals are unclean, and I'm a, I'm a good Jew. I can't soil myself by eating these unclean animals. And, and God says to Peter, what God has made clean, 
Don't call unclean. And so Peter's eyes are basically open to the reality that, that in Christ, whatever it means by Jesus saying, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Peter knows that in Christ now, a dividing wall has come down between Jews and Gentiles so that now these dietary restrictions should no longer be a barrier to entry for anyone, Jew or Gentile alike. Faith, not food laws, is now the mark of a true Christian. That's how Peter got to Cornelius. Now, the second point of his sermon is remember how God saved Cornelius? Remember how God saved Cornelius? Peter is clear in verse 9, Cornelius and his whole family had their sinful hearts cleansed by faith. Oh, friends, I know you've heard this a thousand and one times, but for some of these individuals listening to Peter retell the story, their, their, their minds were just being shocked. These Gentile hearts were cleansed. They were renewed. They were born again by faith. So Peter didn't tell Cornelius to be circumcised because he understood the ramifications of the vision. Faith is now the mark of entrance into the kingdom of God. And so that's what Peter means in verse 8 when he says God made no distinction between us and between them. God could have said, God could have said that Cornelius needed to be circumcised or eat kosher before he became a Christian. God could have said that, that Cornelius needed to effectively become Jewish before he could become Christian. And only then would he be free to receive the forgiveness that comes through Christ. But that would be to draw a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And in God's mind, that distinction is no more. In Christ, these distinctions are gone. Verse 11. Peter says, we, Jews, will be saved by, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Like, not a little bit saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Not like the grace is going to get me 95% of the way, and now we just need 5% of Judaism to get the, the whole way. No, no. We will be saved 100% through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will be saved 100% through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, here's Peter's third point. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon within a sermon. Peter's third point, don't test God. Look at Peter's question in verse 10. He says, now, to, perhaps to anyone in this little gathering of apostles and elders who might have been a little bit skeptical, he says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, not one Jew in all of history has been able to find salvation through obedience to the law. It has never happened that anyone has found salvation through obedience to the law. Uh, trying to find salvation that way is like carrying a yoke that is absolutely too heavy to be carried. And once you go down the road of requiring obedience in order to be saved, now all of a sudden you've got the question, well, how much obedience? Which laws do I need to obey? How well do I need to obey them? You'd be left asking who can be saved. And all that would be to put God to the test. 
A God who has opened up his kingdom to all who would simply turn and trust in Christ. Salvation is by grace. It's not found by working, but by resting in Christ's work on the cross. And when Peter finished, verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. And like, these are some big hitters there who fell silent. Barnabas and Paul, they begin to tell some stories of some Gentile converts. So Paul and Barnabas are probably saying, we've seen this happen. We've seen God save Gentiles with the gospel. We've seen their lives changed by the gospel. They were not circumcised. And oh, by the way, to prove his pleasure, God performed signs and wonders to show all of us that this was his work and not ours. And then James stands up. James. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, whose character is so remarkable that in, in history he's known as James the Just. Sometimes people refer to him as the man who has knees like a camel because he was down on his knees praying so often. This is James. And James gets up and, and uh, he summarizes the answer from Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now Simeon is the, the, the Jewish name for, for Peter. So Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here's Amos. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but I've got two, anybody, but I have two sermons basically on Acts 15. I'm really going to talk about verses 19 through 21 next week. Suffice it to say that, that James is not saying that in order to be saved, they now have to eat kosher. I'll talk about why sexual morality is thrown in there. He's saying, look, I'm not denying that for various reasons we need to see some changes in your life. Right? I'm going to talk about that next week. But to say that, he's not going to, that they must not trouble the Gentiles, he's talking there about entrance into the kingdom of God. Those who turn to God must not be stymied. They, may, they must not be stopped by a requirement that they follow the law. Right? That's how... James sums up the conversation. This goes with what Peter already told them, but of course, James goes to the Bible. Now, I know that it is difficult for us in 2020 to appreciate the magnitude of this moment in church history because we're the beneficiaries of this magnitude in the moment of church history. I was trying to think what would have happened if if Acts 15 had not happened and if the church had split 
and forever on, there would be a cult of people that said to become Christian, you first have to be Jewish. And I think our congregation would look a lot different and in some very unhealthy ways. Legalism would ensue. We're the beneficiaries of the teaching of Acts 15. I want to make it clear that, that, that these elders in Jerusalem, they didn't make theology. No, we, we learned from Paul's letter to the Galatians that Paul had already worked through this. He'd already sorted through this question, but never before in the young history of the church had there been more believers on the same page about how one entered the kingdom of God. And friends, that's a big deal. Now they had a comprehensive understanding not only of what, that the gospel is for the nations, but now that they knew that you didn't have to be Jewish in order to be the people of God. And so from this point forward, and, and Acts really is showing this, from this point forward, the gospel is going to burst forth. Evangelism and missions are going to spread like wildfire because the good news is now clearer than it's ever been. We're justified by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. To show that this has always been God's plan, James cites one of the oldest prophets, the first prophet to leave a book, Amos. Verse 16, Amos predicts a day when the, the tent of David that has fallen would re be rebuilt. In Christ, that day has come. Friends, we talked about that all December. Right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, all December, we talked about Jesus as the new and the greater David in Jesus, all the promises of a forever king and a forever throne have been established and fulfilled. He's the everlasting king. But even though David was the king of Israel, the kingdom of Jesus will be much greater than Israel. Verse 17, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, by God's name, God is building a people of Jews and of Gentiles, just as Amos predicted. One people. And so James and the whole gathering conclude, verse 19, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. God is building a church through Christ and not through the law. Not through works, not through performance of any sort. So don't trouble, don't annoy the Gentiles with this wicked requirement of circumcision or obedience to the law. That would be to make a mockery of the gospel and to test the Lord. There was a, a well-known pastor so many years ago, a man by the name of John Gill, well-known in his day, not long before he died in 1771, he wanted to make sure that his congregation understood that God didn't save him because he was a great preacher. God didn't save him because he knew that one day he was going to be a great pastor. And so before he died, this is what John Gill left. And I want you to listen carefully. This is what he said. I depend wholly and alone upon the free, sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love of God, the firm and everlasting covenant of grace, and my interest 
in the persons of the Trinity, I depend wholly on these for my whole salvation. And not upon any righteousness of my own, nor anything in me, nor done by me under the influence of the Holy Spirit, nor upon any services of mine which I have assisted to perform for the good of the church do I depend, but upon the free grace of God and the blessings of grace streaming to me through the blood and righteousness of Christ as the ground of my hope. Can you just hear Acts 15 uh, just punctuating his words? And this is a man who understands that admittance into the kingdom of God is not for the godly. I came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous, Jesus said. This is the theology of Acts 15. So Christian, you're standing before God at this very moment was not purchased by your performance, but by the blessings of grace streaming to you through the blood and righteousness of Christ. That is the answer from Jerusalem. Your salvation was not purchased by your works, but by the blessings of grace streaming to you through the blood and righteousness of Christ. All right? Number three, my sermon, not Peter's. Number three, the wonder of the gospel. This is where I want to end. The wonder of the gospel. Maybe everything that I've said this morning is what you already believe. And you're thinking, really? I came out of bed out of obedience to Jesus, but I've not heard anything I don't already believe. Well, number one, I think that's okay. But number two, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not here this morning believing all of this. Maybe you've never really understood the freeness of salvation. Maybe it just seems too good to be true. Maybe your dad taught you right. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And here's a pastor saying, salvation is free. Well, if that's you, I invite you to believe. Put your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. See yourself as a person so full of sin that your best work isn't untouched by your sinful heart. And therefore, even your best work in the eyes of God is sinful. Do what those Gentiles did a long time ago and turn to Christ. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. Drop your bag of sin that's worthless anyway. And rest in the good news that Christ can and will save all who turn to him. If you are a Christian and you realize as I've been preaching that you first entered the kingdom of Christ by your own works, then I exhort you to repent of that. To repent of giving yourself any credit for your salvation and adopt this biblical understanding that it's only through the streaming blood of Christ that anyone can be saved. Now, what happens when Christ saves you this way? What happens when Christ saves you this way, which is the only way, and not by your own works? 
Well, if Christ is your king, there are many promises that you get to enjoy. And so I'm going to leave you this morning with just three of them because Peter preached three points. Promise number one. So if you're a Christian, I want you to enjoy this, okay? This, like if you're a Christian, I'm preaching to you, I want you to enjoy this. Don't think about lunch. Just stop and enjoy. Here's one Christian pastor telling you this is true. These are promises that God is going to keep, all right? If you're not a Christian, I want you to see what you're missing out on. Yes, that may sound mean, that I will be mean to you. You are missing out on this. What I'm about to say is good, and you're missing out on it if Christ is not your king. All right? Promise number one, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. We live in a world surrounded by people striving to prove how smart, funny, witty, accomplished, charming, and worthy they are. But here is the wonder of the gospel. Though you are not worthy enough to deserve God's love, you are loved and accepted by your creator because you are in Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to prove. Most of my ministry is spent getting people to untie their sense of value and contentment and joy from their performance as a spouse, as a parent, as a single, as an employee, as a friend, and so on and so forth. Most of my ministry is spent trying to unhook people's sense of identity from all of those things. And it's something that we all struggle with. It's something that I struggle with. Right? Every week I prepare to preach before you, and every week my job is on display for you. And if you think that, like, I don't struggle with that, you're silly. In my flesh, I want to be impressive so I can prove to you that I deserve to take up an hour or more of your time. No one deserves an hour more of your time, but Jesus does. But the gospel reminds me that not only is my worth not in what I own, my worth is not in what I do. My worth is in Christ. And so by his grace and for his glory, I do the best that I can. We do the best that we can for the glory of God the promise is we have nothing to prove because Jesus paid it all. So the, the 21st century church needs to stop simply singing Jesus paid it all, but start believing Jesus paid it all. You can live in this kind of freedom if you only remember the answer from Jerusalem. Entrance into the kingdom is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Promise number two, you have a seat at the table. If Acts 15 is true, then Mount Vernon is not a Jewish church, a Gentile church, a white church, a brown church, a rich church, a poor church. We are a Christian church. I am not trying to be naive. I know that our geography has implications. I know that our history has implications. 
I know that our skin color has implications. I know that we have all been shaped by experiences that we simply cannot drop at the door and pretend they don't exist when they, we sit in the pew. I know our differences matter. But what matters most is the fact that God makes no distinction between people. What matters most is that God knows the heart. God cares that we have turned to him, that we put our faith in Christ the King, and that we are now willing to love and serve one another as full-fledged brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if God plucked you out of the dominion of darkness, and if God transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins, then you have a home here. There's a seat for you in this very, very, very imperfect church we call Mount Vernon. If you do not have a church home, talk to me. Talk to someone around you. If this is your church home, but you don't feel like it's your church home, talk to me. Talk to someone around you. God makes no distinction. You have a seat at the table. All right, number three, promise number three. You will honor your Savior. You will honor your Savior. I could have put this a number of different ways. I would have said you can honor your Savior. I could have said you must honor your Savior. Absolutely true. I'm focusing right now on what I understand to be the blood-bought promise that God has ordained good works for you to do. And if you're a Christian, you will honor your Savior. If you have been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, you will never be the same again. Someone here may be wondering if the freeness of salvation means God doesn't care how I live. Well, God cares very much. So much so, again, that he has ordained good works for you to do. Christian, God has changed your heart. God has changed your desires. You are motivated now not by asking, what do I have to do? But by asking, what do I get to do? Far too many Christians, and I hope they're Christians, go through life asking what they can do and still be a Christian. The better question is, Lord, how can I honor you today? That's the heart of someone who has been changed and who is now free to serve the Lord with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and make no mistake. God used the lives of these Christians who understood that salvation is free to turn the world upside down. These Christians who believed that they were saved not by anything they did, they went out and they did a lot to the praise of God's name, and the world took notice. In Christ, we have a Savior who loved us enough to die for us, and in Christ, we have a Savior who will never leave us nor forsake us, in Christ, we have a Savior. We are free to love and free to serve. He didn't just save us. He sent his Holy Spirit to fill us so that every day by his grace, 
we will truly honor him, our Savior. Do you remember those athletes uh, who experienced what I've never experienced, glaring at someone who they just dunked on or whatever? Right? As if to say, look at me, I'm the best. And how tempting is it just to fall into that trap and like, look at me, I've got community, or look at me, I'm in a healthy church, or look at me, you know, January, what, 11th, and 11 days of Bible reading. I'm the best, right? That's human nature. It's a performance culture that we live in. It, it seeps into the church. We're all tempted to find our worth in what we do and how we perform. Now, I don't want in any way trivialize everything I just talked about with a bad illustration, but I just want you to end thinking about how silly that is. So let me bring you into, I don't play sports, but I have followed basketball a long time. And in 1992, I watched the game where the Chicago Bulls played my Portland Trailblazers for the first game in the finals. And uh, they had a player, maybe you've heard of him, Michael Jordan. Again, not my team. And me mentioning Jordan positively is evidence of sanctification in my own life. <laughs> All right? You will honor your Savior. Case in point. So in the first two quarters, Michael Jordan scored 35 points. I don't know if it was the, the last of the 35 points, but he put up his sixth three-pointer sometime in the second quarter. And when he was done, and some of you will know what I'm talking about, he didn't glare. No daggers came out of his eyes. It was as if he knew his performance was absolutely so transcendent that he couldn't in good conscience say, wow, look at me. So this is what he did. Could we have a little bit of that? Like something has happened to us that is so transcendent, so unbelievable, so, dare I say, bizarre, that God, knowing exactly who each of us was, saved us anyway? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask you to just revive us with this great doctrine, with this great truth that you're not just the one who saved us like 99%, but you saved us 100%. And we don't earn any of our salvation. And we serve you because we get to and because we want to. And yes, sure, we're commanded to, but not by way of entrance into the kingdom of Christ. And so, Father, we do pray for anyone in a congregation like this that might either still not get it or may never have gotten it. Father, would you open the eyes of their hearts to appreciate the freeness of salvation 
And would you lead them today, right now, to put all their faith in you? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.